Thank you, choir and orchestra. Thank you for being here this morning. Uh, today is kind of a, another step in our opening processes as uh, small groups will uh, re-engage on campus. A lot of our small groups have been meeting uh, already uh, and on different uh, uh, days and evenings, but uh, I'm glad that we're re-engaging uh, that uh, this morning and glad to see so many of you out. I'm grateful we have uh, such a large auditorium. It enables us to uh, spread out a little bit during these days, and I know that provides a bit of comfort to, uh, to us uh, as we try to practice the proper protocols, which, uh, by the way, seem to change uh, from day to day and week to week, but uh, I'm glad you're here uh, this morning. I want you to take your Bibles and open up to 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll read our text in just a bit. Today I want to conclude our series on the last days. I want to conclude it on Sundays, but I'm not actually concluding the series. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Uh, there's still much that I have to share with you, but uh, I was spending time with the Lord recently and just had this strong, I told my wife I had a strong sensation, woke up in the middle of one night and had this strong sense from the Lord that it was time to complete this series on Sunday. Now the Lord's given me some other stuff I'm going to begin sharing with you about what it means to have life in the Spirit. That's where we'll, we'll be headed uh, in the weeks to come. But uh, at any rate, uh, I want to wrap this up on Sunday mornings with today's message. However, I'm going to move the rest of what I want to talk to you about as it relates to the last days to Wednesday to my pastor's Bible study. Uh, but now it'll be, I guess it'll be the second week of um, September before we actually have uh, that next uh, session. Now what I'm going to do, and I'll, I'll, I'll make it known to you, but I'm going to do a, uh, the first uh, session of my pastor's Bible study continuing this topic. I'm going to do a Q&A on the last days. Uh, so come ready with your questions, and I can answer every one of them. Uh, no, I'll give it my best shot, and if I can't, uh, if we can't find out uh, precisely what the Scripture says, and I'll just be honest and tell you that, but uh, at any rate, we'll do that uh, in September. Uh, the reason we won't do it uh, two Wednesday nights away is because that's going to be our second prayer summit. Uh, remember the first one we had back in uh, July? Some stuff the Lord put on my heart. We're going to pray those things again. For the next three months on the last Wednesday of the month, we're going to do a solemn assembly prayer summit like we did with guided prayer. I will add just a little bit of Bible study in that uh, session as it relates to what we'll be praying about. But I hope you'll mark that down. So this Wednesday night, no pastor's Bible study. The next Wednesday night will be uh, a prayer summit. And so uh, I hope you'll be here uh, for that. Just make note of those things. Uh, we've been in this series since January. In fact, uh, I say that only because it's been so timely. When we began this series, we had no idea what would be going on in our nation. We certainly didn't understand the pandemic that would sweep across the globe. But it uh, has caused a lot of interest in this topic, as you can well imagine, from people all over. According to the Joshua Fund's recent survey, nearly half of the country believes that this sweeping and deadly coronavirus is actually a wake-up call from God. And in the survey, one-third said they see it as part of the last day's predictions uh, of the Scripture. Some 44% said that the virus crisis is a wake-up call for us to turn back to faith in God. I, by the way, I don't know when Jesus, you'll see in our passage uh, uh, about timelines, I don't know when Jesus is going to return, but I'll tell you this, 
If this isn't a wake-up call, uh, I'm not sure what you would classify a wake-up call. And, um, and so many said in that survey, not only do they see it as a wake-up call to turn back to God, but they also see it as signs of the coming judgment of God. And those who agreed with this, uh, these last-day predictions make up an interesting mix of uh, our population. 30% of Jewish Americans believe that we are now living in the last days and that this is a wake-up call. 30% of Democrats believe it. 39% of Republicans believe it. 40% of African Americans believe it. And 50% of uh, Hispanic Americans believe it. The survey also noted that 22% uh, of self-identified non-Christians Non-Christians, 22% of them, uh, and 40% of Christians said that the crisis has resulted in a greater interest in God in spiritual matters. Well, that's good, isn't it? Uh, because if it turns our hearts back toward God. In another poll conducted by the nationally recognized McLaughlin and Associates, one-third of their respondents said that, and I quote, they fear that the end really is near. Well, in light of surveys like these, and given what we've been talking about now for these past uh, uh, eight months about what the Bible says regarding the last days, there is an important question that needs to be both asked and answered, and that is the title of the message today, but it comes from a question that Peter asked uh, in the passage that we're going to read, and he says, seeing all these things, uh, what manner of person should you be, or uh, how then shall we live knowing what we know? What should it do to the way we, we operate? And it's a good question uh, for us to ask uh, in this time. If our hearts are being turned back to God, it also is a time to evaluate whether or not we're living for God and what it means to live for God in light of the information that He has given us. And I want to show you the answer to that question from our text this morning. If you're physically able to do so, I invite you to stand with me as we read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, 2 Peter, uh, this is what the Scripture says. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say... Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world uh, that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the, uh, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for the 
uh, uh, hastening, uh, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Father, thank you for reminding us that we must remember what you've promised. We must remember, uh, Father, that you said you're coming back. That, Father, no matter what's going on in our world, our hope and our assurance is not in the moment, it's in you. And so, Father, I pray today that you will enlighten our hearts and our minds, that you will challenge, that you will convict us, and, Father, you will transform us. And, Father, I pray that when we leave this place today, we will leave with a, a greater passion to live lives of godliness and holiness. And for those who hear your word today that do not know you, that they'll understand the urgency of the hour and put their trust in you. Speak now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. And as you're being seated, I just want to say a, a word of welcome to those who are joining us uh, by live stream, many people uh, around uh, the country and even in uh, foreign lands who are joining us by live stream. We are so glad to have you uh, tuned in to our worship experience. Ridgecrest, would you welcome them to our broadcast today? Well, I just shared with you a number of these surveys that uh, out that are telling us that that uh, not only do people believe we're living in the last days, but there is a fascination by the subject of the second coming and the end of the age. But the fascination is not what God is after when he speaks about these things. He's not trying to uh, pique our curiosity. He's not trying to just get us fascinated uh, with these things. No, what, what God is trying to do is uh, bring about preparation in our life. And uh, he wants us uh, uh, to know what uh, is ahead for both our assurance, but also for our readiness, uh, so that we can be ready for the, what Peter calls the day uh, of the Lord. You see, godly living is related to, and it's grounded in the return of Christ. And when Christ comes, the day of God will commence. And Peter says that the, the world will be destroyed, and a new one will be instituted that's what we're looking for. As a result, Peter instructs us on how we should live, not then, but right now. One of the things uh, that I've said uh, that the Lord has been teaching me through all of these months is to live for Him right now and not try to live for Him six months from now. Now, I think we ought to plan and we ought to think about uh, the future, but we ought to live for Him right now. And we ought not be uh, uh, consumed by what might be, what could be. Instead, we already know some things to be fact. And we live right now for God. That's why Jesus said it in Matthew 6, uh, 33. And Peter is telling us in this passage why we, should, why we should prepare ourselves, but also how we should live for Christ until he returns in the now. And so I want to show you five things that I believe will help prepare us uh, for the greatest single event other than the resurrection that has ever occurred in the history of humanity. And so there are five things I want to show you this morning. The first is this. We, if we're going to answer that question, how should we live, we must remember the prophetic word. Verse 2, keep your Bibles open, if you will, so we can reference those things. He says, remember the prediction of the holy prophets. 
Remember what they prophesied. Remember what they told us. We should live with a depth of knowledge about the prophetic. If you are going to be ready when the day of the Lord comes, you must live right now with an understanding of what the Bible teaches about the day of the Lord that will come. You don't have to live in fear of that, but you can walk by faith, understanding of what's ahead. And it's one of the reasons we study Bible prophecy. Now, if you're new to this series, watching us online or by television or in this audience, uh, and you say, yeah, why do we study Bible prophecy? The very first message I did in this series was entitled, Why Study Prophecy? And I would urge you to go back as I go into more detail about why we should study prophecy. But one of the reasons we study prophecy is to prepare ourselves for the return of Christ. And so we have to understand what the prophetic word uh, has to say. And what Christ said. Christ served not only as the Messiah, but also the the all-knowing Savior who told us what to expect in the last days. And so we need to understand those things. And so Peter tells us we are to remember the prophetic words. Why? So, well, to recognize the seasons and know the signs. Studying prophecy helps us uh, put things uh, that are going on around us in proper perspective, doesn't it? So that when we see some of the things that happen around us and what uh, I really believe are some of the beginning, at least birth pangs, uh, when we see those things, we say, I'm not surprised at that. I'm not shocked by that. The Bible said, Jesus told us that these things would characterize the end of the age. It keeps us awake, doesn't it? It keeps us alert, which the Bible counsels us to be. I'll tell you another another reason to remember the prophetic words that have been taught to us and proclaimed in the Scripture, and that is so we are, in the moment of His return, we are adequately ready and prepared. You see, knowing prophecy motivates us to to change and to walk right. It it keeps us clean. I read the story some years ago. I shared it years ago in another message, but there was an occasion back during the presidency of Dwight D. Eisenhower where he was vacationing in Denver, Colorado, and he was reading the local newspaper there, and his eyes fell across uh, an open letter that had been printed by a six-year-old boy who lived in Denver. His name was Paul Haley, and he was dying of cancer, a six-year-old boy. And the letter said that he had only one wish before he died, and that is he wanted to meet the President of the United States. Well, spontaneously, in one of those kind of gracious gestures that history tells us that Grant, that uh, Eisenhower was known for, he decided to fulfill the boy's request. And so on Sunday morning in August, uh, this big limousine pulls up out in front of the Haley household. And out stepped the president. He walked up to the door. He knocked on the door. And the boy's father, Dale Haley, answered the door. And he was wearing old blue jeans, a faded T-shirt. He was unshaven, and he was half awake. And he was stunned to see the president standing there knocking on his door. Um, And so the president came in. He visited with this uh, six-year-old boy, Paul, and He took him out and showed him around the presidential limousine and let him sit in it and talked. And then after a while, he left. The president did. And in the weeks that followed, you can imagine the family, all they could talk about and all the neighbors could talk about was the morning when the president came to see Paul Haley, this six-year-old young boy. And everybody just, that's all they could talk about. Wasn't that magnificent and and, uh, wasn't that a wonderful day and wonderful gesture and all of that? The only person who wasn't entirely happy about it, guess what, was that little boy's dad. 
And the reason he wasn't entirely happy about it, because he, he said when they asked him, he said, those old jeans, I had those old jeans on. He said, that old shirt. He said, I hadn't shaved. He said, I, I didn't know. He, he said, what a way to meet the President of the United States. And he regretted that he hadn't have gotten up earlier and been shaved sooner uh, on that uh, morning visit. He was unprepared, he said. I just wasn't prepared. Well, I want to tell you something. A surprise visit from the president would be an occasion to be prepared for sure. But the New Testament speaks of a day that's three, uh, over 300 times either directly or indirectly, that tells us that it's not the president who's coming, but it's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And one day he's going to step out of heaven. He's going to say, answer the door. I'm here. Behold, I'm knocking at the door. He's going to come back and there will be only one return of Christ. And we don't want to be, spiritually speaking, unshaven, tattered jeans, old t-shirt we want to be found ready ready for his return i'll tell you there's another reason you ought to remember prophecy and that is you ought to to encourage each other with the return the bible it speaks about the return of christ as i said on 300 different occasions and sometimes we're told to use this as an encouragement Remembering the prophetic word is actually a tool that we can inspire and encourage one another with uh, in the faith family. When we're going through hardship, listen, this is how we use the encouragement of the, uh, of the return of Christ. You're going through some hardship, and there are people in this building today, and you're going through hardship, or your family is going through hardship, and here's the encouragement for you. Good news, it isn't always going to be this way, because Jesus Christ is coming back. And because Jesus Christ is coming back, we look at the, the, the vicissitudes of this life and the pains of this life and the, the sufferings of this life, and we put it in perspective because we know what the prophetic word says, and that is our eyes are fixed on an eternal kingdom. We are citizens of the kingdom of God, and we encourage one another. Do you know that's what the early church did? Listen, they were going through suffering and persecution and great ordeal, and you know how they encouraged each other? They said, Reggie, Jesus Christ is coming back. It's not always going to be this way. Brother Tim, Christ is one day coming for us, and this shoulder stuff and all that, it's going to be gone. See, one day he's coming back. We encourage one another with that. Amen? And so when you look out there and you say, COVID-19, it's changed our world. It really has, and probably for the foreseeable future. But let me tell you something this morning. It's not always going to be here. And we're not always going to be here. One day Jesus is coming back. And we encourage each other with that wonderful truth. That's one of the reasons you should remember a prophecy. Often we express the curse of living in this broken world with these things that, that we talk about, sickness and suffering and pain and all of that. But the Bible reminds us that He is our blessed hope. And it's our blessed hope of salvation. Listen. For the believer, the return is the blessed hope. It's not the cursed hope. It's the blessed hope. 
because we are, are no longer in, under condemnation. Paul said in Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's only blessing ahead for those who are in Christ Jesus in the kingdom of God. As awesome as the coming of Christ will be, it will not be a curse for Christians. Now, if you don't know the Lord Jesus uh, Christ as your Savior, as I've said before, I'm not trying to scare you into heaven, but I want to tell you something. You ought to be terrified of what's coming. Because the Bible says for us it is a blessed hope, but for those outside of the family of God, it is a day of the wrath of God. But second, until Christ comes, and here's the second thing that Peter tells us, you should expect hostility from prophetic critics. Expect that. Don't be stunned by that. Every week I'm hearing more and more things. I'm, I'm collecting a file, and it's huge, of, of the hostilities that are being expressed against the Christian church and against those who uh, claim the, the name of Jesus Christ. Well, we shouldn't be surprised at that. Look at verse 3. It says, Know uh, that, uh, this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. And you know what they'll be scoffing about? There all kinds of things. But one of the things they'll be scoffing at is, is those who believe in prophecy. Those who believe that Jesus is coming back, that Jesus is the blessed hope. Many people will scoff at those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ and made him their hope. They will say it's just, it's just sensationalistic fiction to do that. Israeli journalist Gershom Gorenberg, in his book, listen, The End of Days, he called belief in biblical prophecies of the end times a fantasy and dangerous. Bill Moyers, you perhaps know that name. Bill Moyers, by the way, a Southern Baptist, or at some point in time in his history, ordained in the Baptist uh, church as a Baptist minister. You've heard me talk about Bill Anderson. Uh, they were in school together and, uh, and, and had uh, uh, some uh, overlap in terms of ministry. But he was a long time, has been a long time uh, PBS journalist. In 2004, uh, a speech he gave, he marveled that there are actually people who believe the Bible is literally true. And he called belief in the end times matters simply bizarre. Or then there's uh, former Republican strategist Kevin Phillips in his 2006 best-selling book, American Theocracy, and he warned that Americans who believe in biblical prophecy are over-imaginative, that's a quote, they are radical, that's a quote, and asserted that the, quote, rapture, end times, and Armageddon hucksters in the United States rank with, in his opinion, any of the Shiite ayatollahs. Now, none of this should surprise us, and that's a sampling. But none of this should surprise us. Note again, verse 3, he says, Peter clearly says that one of the characteristics of the final days will be scoffers. And listen, and he even tells us the reason that they will scoff at the truths of God and the ideas of the return of Christ. They will downplay and they will scoff at it so they can justify living in sin. They can justify their own behavior. Uh, they won't have to face reality if they can downplay it. You know, it's the old thing, if I deny the message, then the message can't be real. Or if I shoot the messenger, then I don't have to hear the message anymore. But Peter says right there that they will scoff so they can continue to live in their own sinful behaviors. 
the level of hostility toward the church and Christianity in America and really around the globe. It's been going on more so around the globe, but now it is moving to America with increasing exponentiality. And that's consistent with what the Scripture teaches. Before Billy Graham died, he issued a written warning to the churches in America. He said, and I quote, prepare for persecution. And then in an article, he noted that the American church has been largely unfamiliar with persecution. And he wrote that uh, this immunity in America to persecution that Christians have, uh, have cultivated and experienced over the past two or three centuries is absolutely unusual. Uh, and as a whole, he says, our nation does not know what privation is. We do not know what sacrifice is. We do not know what suffering is. Suppose persecution were to come, he writes, to the church in America as it has come to the church in all other countries. Since we have experienced little religious persecution in this country, it is likely that under pressure many would deny Christ. In fact, he says, and this is chilling, those who shout the loudest about their faith may surrender soonest. Author and lecturer, one of my favorite authors, Oscar Ness, sounded a similar caution. He said, I am less concerned about the persecution uh, than about the bad responses to the talk of it. Did you get that? He said, I'm less concerned about the persecution that will come as I am about the, 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 the way we're treating it or dealing with it or not talking about it. It's what he's saying. He said, we are at a solemn moment for humanity and for the church in the United States and in the West. We are nearing the climax, listen to this, of the centuries-long attempted secularist takeover from the Jewish and Christian faiths as they, they have been the defining faiths of Western civilization. Now, while we do... We, we don't want scoffers and persecution. Uh, none of us want that. We shouldn't be surprised by it. We should expect it, Peter tells us. And we should see it for what it is. It is an indication of the last days. And so Peter is saying, how should we live? We should live with the understanding that going to be, there's going to be an increase in the critics and the scoffers about what we believe, those who will try to downplay it and undermine it to marginalize and eventually try to shut it down. We're already seeing some of this as it relates to things that have been going on in COVID. Now, I, you know, I'm not a prophet. I've told you that before. I'm not a prophet. And uh, I work for a nonprofit organization. Y'all get that about lunchtime. But I've told our staff, and I think they would affirm this, I told our staff uh, three months ago, you get ready because before this stuff is all over, there will be significant parts of our culture blaming it on the church of Jesus Christ. Didn't I tell you that? It's happening already. Churches should shut down. Casinos should stay open. Churches should shut down because churches are far more uh, uh, an avenue of contagion. The numbers don't bear it out, by the way. It's, it's the age. It's a hostility toward the truths of God that a culture does not want to know or hear, and the potential influence of the church is a threat to a culture that is further and further slipping away from its roots. 
Let me give you a third thing. I need to move on. You said I had till 10.15. Is that right, Chuck? Let me tell you a third thing that Peter gives us here that that the return of Christ should cause us uh, uh, to do. It should cause us to live a life of purity and holiness. He speaks of it there in verse 11. Your, Your goal, my goal, is holy living. And And the scripture says, God speaks and says, be holy for I am holy. It is one of the goals of the believer is to live a holy life. Holiness means that our behavior is set apart from that of the world. There's a distinctive difference between the way we live, the attitudes that possess us, than there is in the world. It's what makes us distinct. In fact, it is what should make us attractive to a lost world is instead of trying to be like the world, we're different from the world. We're, we don't have to be hostile to the world. I've told you a hundred times, don't, don't, don't ever get angry at lost people for acting lost. But we should be such, uh, such uh, men and women that are distinctively different that the world notices. It, take, it takes notice. Your goal is to, to live holy. Why? Because the world... And it's evil, and there is evil in this world. Listen, the Bible says it's not going to make it. It's going to pass away. And so we not only have our hope, but we are to be beacons of that hope to those right now who have none. Godliness means that we seek to reflect the character of God uh, through our lives. It means that we imitate Him. He's our model. He is our standard. We do not compare ourselves with each other, by the way. Holiness is not a comparable standard. Well, I'm more holy than you, or He's more holy than me. That's not what we do. Our standard is Jesus Christ. And the good news is, as I'll be talking in the next uh, uh, series, because the Spirit of God lives in us, we have access to the nature and the character and the holiness of God. You know, Paul said that you and I have the mind of Christ. And so we don't compare ourselves with each other. That, that standard is too low. Some of you may remember, I don't know, probably a decade ago now that I think of it, there was a series of commercials about Michael Jordan, and it said this, I want to be like Mike. Anybody but me remember that? Anybody else remember that? I want to be like Mike. Uh, you know, is it, it, when it comes to basketball, who doesn't? You know? But I want to tell you, that's a standard way too low. We want to be like Christ. We want to be like Christ. That's what you and I ought to say. I want to be like Christ. Why? And, and if I, I am pursuing a godly life and a holy life, guess what? I'm going to be ready when Jesus comes back. We are his bride, and we need to be pure when he returns. And you say, How, what is the purity? We use that word purity uh, there, or godliness and holiness. What does it mean to have a pure life? Well, let me suggest it means three things. Number one, it means a pure walk. You say, what is purity? What is godliness? It, it is a pure walk. We, we live to please him. He is our audience that we live for. You know, there are a lot of Christians that are missing out on the dynamic of their relationship with God because they're living to impress other Christians instead of living for the honor of Christ. He is our audience. And our behavior is to be shaped by our devotion to Him. That's why Paul writes in Colossians 1 and verse 10, it says, So uh, walk in a manner that is uh, worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good word, uh, work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see what he said? Walk in a manner uh, that is 
worthy of the Lord that is pleasing to him. He is our audience. Lord, what is pleasing to you? Lord, how do you instruct me to walk? And his word is full of instructions on how to walk. And so I look at his word, I keep my eyes on him, and I say, you are my audience. I want to walk in a manner that's uh, 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 worthy of you and pleasing to you. Here's a second thing uh, uh, about purity, and that is not only a pure walk, you need a pure mind. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, Paul writes in uh, Romans chapter 12. And as I said, he also tells us that we have the mind of Christ. Listen, lift up your head. You want a pure mind? Lift up your head. Guard your mind from the vain philosophies of this world. I said it, I think, on Wednesday night, but there some folks need to be turning their television sets off right now because they're getting more of their counsel from news sources than they are from the source, the Scripture. And so they're living with fear, and they're scared to death, and they're terrified because all they they have, and by the way, it doesn't matter whether it's conservative or if it's liberal, they're getting the same information that the world is collapsing. You ought to be scared of these people. You ought to be terrified by this thing. And I want to tell you something. If you want truth, get in this book. Turn your television off. Because it'll scare you to death if that's all you watch. And that's a reason, by the way, it's affecting Christians out there. Because they're getting more of their counsel from the world than they are from the Word. And so it's corrupting the way we think. It's creating anxieties and fears. I didn't. Now listen, don't walk out of here and say, well, he just told us to throw caution to the wind. That's not what I said. Be smart, be wise, all of those things. I've been telling you that for three or four months now. But listen, what I want you to know is this is the source of truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You might substitute the grass and the flower and say the news and the pundits will fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen? And so that's why we need to say, God, I know, I know what the world says, and I, I don't just blow it all off, but I'll tell you, I'm going to get my counsel from your book. Amen. So my mind will be pure. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, 2, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And by the way, did you know that passage where that verse, well, you've heard that verse, how many of you have heard that verse before? Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You've heard that, all right? Um, did you know this, though? that that verse is set in the context, go read it, of the second coming of Christ. Verse 4 that follows after that talks about because Christ is going to return. And we're also told to, to, to lift up our heads, to keep our gaze. Here's the point, to keep our gaze on Jesus. And I want to tell you something. If you don't, you're going to be filled with a lot of anxiety right now. So a pure mind. What does it mean to walk in godliness and holiness? A pure walk, a pure mind, and then a pure heart. You know what that means? It means that you let Jesus Christ be Lord of all. Now, he is Lord of all in the eternal sense, but in your personal life, is he Lord of all in your life? And I want to tell you something. There are a lot of times we say, well, Jesus is Lord, but we don't really mean Jesus is Lord of me. We say, Jesus is Lord. Yes, he is Lord, but is he Lord of you? And you say, well, if, he's, if he lives in me, he's Lord of me. No, he isn't. His residence doesn't mean he's the president. In fact, Jesus is such a gentleman. He will not force himself on you. 
If you're lost and you don't know Christ, he won't force himself. You say, well, Jesus is never, uh, he's never forced him. That's right. He won't do that. And if you are a believer, he won't force you to yield control of your life to him. That's why Paul talked about those believers who were carnal, he said. They, were, they lived more like the world than they did uh, like the kingdom. But a pure heart means to let Jesus Christ be Lord of all, to guard your heart against the lies of the devil. And I want to tell you something. If Jesus isn't Lord of your heart, sooner or later your heart is going to grow cold and hard to the things of God. And bitterness will result, and anger perhaps that's why the scripture says, let the peace of God rule in you. And it's why David wrote in Psalm 24, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who? He answers, he who has clean hands and listen, a pure heart. That's who will stand in the presence of God. You see, the key to live a holy, uh, living a holy life and a pure life is to live by the power of the Holy Spirit and His control, not just residing in you, but presiding over you. Holiness is not something, by the way, you manufacture. You don't say, well, I'm going to manufacture. That's what the Pharisees tried to do. But they were doing it in their own effort. You say, I, I can't be holy. That's right, you can't, but He is and if you belong to him, he is in you. And when you yield to him, guess what he does? He produces what you can't produce. It's called the fruit of the Spirit, and that is holiness and godliness that results. And by the way, this is an essential for spiritual survival in the last days. Well, let me move on. Fourth, Peter tells us, wait patiently for Christ's return. How do you live? You wait patiently for his return. Verse 12, waiting for and hastening the coming. You see, if we believe God's word and we're pursuing holiness, let me tell you what you can do. Do you, do you get that? If you, if you believe God's word, you've yielded control of your life to the power of the Spirit operating in you, you're pursuing holiness, let me tell you what you can do. You can relax. You can relax and wait on him and watch his hand at work. Walter Lippmann was a brilliant Jewish journalist, and he wrote years ago in a column called Today and Tomorrow. And in one of his columns in March the 2nd, he wrote these words, The signs are multiplying that the stage is set for an event of worldwide importance and of unpredictable consequences. Twenty centuries ago, the Lord described this setting of the stage as that for the end of the age, an event of worldwide importance. But the consequences were not unpredictable, he writes. And that's because the Lord has told us plainly that these things would happen and what the result of these things would be. And I share that with you to say he understood that we don't have to live in panic about what's to come. We can walk in peace. Why? Because we are waiting for what he has already clearly told us is going to happen. We are waiting. We don't have to get frustrated. And by the way, you don't have to defend God about everything. Did you notice he said uh, the scoffers, when he's talking about scoffers, you know what Peter said? He said, the scoffers will say, 
where is the promise of his coming? Because as the, the fathers have all passed away, their forefathers are, are all asleep now, and they predicted these things, but everything has just continued on the way it is. And Peter answers, he says, you don't understand something. He says, like, he's, first of all, he talks about timeline. He says, a thousand years is, is a day with the Lord. And that's why we, don't, we have to be careful about sitting, uh, setting dates about when he will return. But we can see the signs and the seasons, right? But he goes on to say to them, that he said, let me just answer your question this way. He said, I'm not going to ex- try to explain all this. I'm just going to suffice to say a thousand years is one day. So, so your timetable is off. And secondly, he says, God is not slow concerning his promise, but is patient toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's, Peter answers the scoffer saying, I'm not going to try to explain all this except to say God knows what he's up to. God is operating on a different plan and schedule than you are. He's not, he, he's not dependent on what you think about when he should return. And because it's still true today, you and I can simply relax knowing full well that God is at work in His way, on His schedule, and He's in full control. In fact, impatience with God actually assumes that we understand everything. When you and I get impatient with God, it doesn't matter whether it's in the, as it relates to the return or some other area. You know what we're really saying, God? I understand this a whole lot better than you do. And so I'm impatient with you. That's what Peter was saying to the scoffers. They were saying, where is he? He, the sign of his coming? He, he's not coming. Everything's going on as it always is. And you remember, by the way, Jesus said on that day, people will be g- giving in marriage. They'll be marrying. They'll be going through the routines of their life. And suddenly, like a thief, just like Peter said, he'll return. So Peter says, uh, God doesn't owe you an explanation, and because you're impatient with him doesn't mean you're smarter than him. So though he's coming back, you and I, we don't have to, we don't have to be anxious. We don't have to live fearfully or in confusion. You go all the way back to the first thing I, Peter tells us, and that is remember the prophetic. Remember what the Scripture says. Know what the Scripture says. And so Peter uses this to help us say, just wait, wait patiently, calm down. Here's the theological expression in the Greek. Peter says, chill out. Well, maybe that's not the Greek, but that's what he means. Chill out, relax. And then there's a fifth thing he tells us to do. How do we live until Christ returns, whether it's a a, a month, a a year, six years, 600 years? How do we live? We hold tight, number five. We hold tight to the promises of God. We see it in verse 4, verse 9, verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. According to his promise. We don't live on opinions. That's what the scoffers lived on. We don't live on opinions. We, we, we don't live by sight. We don't let our fears control us, and we don't let circumstances direct us. No, as I said, we live by the authority of the Word of God. And Peter was telling them, and by extension he's telling us, to anchor ourselves in the promises of God's Word. And that's the basis, by the way, is, uh, for, for living in, by faith. We've just done that series on Faith Chronicles, and we talked about how the promises uh, 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 that we hold are anchored in the Word of God. And that's how we live by faith. That's how we face the future in faith. And Jesus said it. 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what Jesus said. So he said, look, anchor your lives in, uh, on the promises of God. Now, here's what that means eventually for everyone. You've got to decide to believe God or not. Uh, it, it, look, this is Ned and the first reader spiritually. You have to decide, am I going to believe God or not? There's a point in time where you have to say, do I believe it or do I not believe it? And if you believe it, then you've got to, listen, you've got to act like you believe it. You've got to adjust to the, to the Word. You've got to anchor yourself in the promises of God. You say, but I don't see them. I want to tell you something. You didn't see a lot of other stuff that's going on in your world. But now when you take it in context of the Word of God, you say, yep, the Bible said it. Yep, 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 the Bible said it. So because you don't see the promise, remember in uh, Hebrews 11, the, the, the faith chapter, we talked several times about the, those great men and women of faith who did not see the promise, they held on to it by faith, knowing that they might not see it in this life, but it might be the next life. You've got to decide, do I believe it or do I not believe? And notice as I close in verse 14, notice verse 4, we didn't read that. Therefore, in other words, on the basis of all that I've just been telling you, beloved, since you are waiting for these, that is the return of Christ, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, that's holiness and godliness, and at peace. We're told to be at peace because these things are coming. The world is in turmoil. Look, you, look, look around you today. The world is in turmoil whether it's social unrest, whether it's political unrest, whether it's, it's the result of the pandemic, the, the world is in turmoil. And in the midst of turmoil, Peter says, because you know what's coming, you've got an advantage. And he says, so live godly lives and be at peace. There are a lot of people today that have no peace, Amen. I mean, they just don't have peace. They, no peace of mind. They're full, filled with confusion and worry. No peace of soul. Inner tar turmoil. They're never settled. No peace with other people. Husbands and wives and colleagues and family and friends. No peace. And for many, no peace with God. Eternal fears. Sins that have separated them. And listen, until you get that one right, you'll never get the others right. It, it starts there. Paul also said in Colossians 3, remember that chapter we've used a couple times today, context of the return of Christ? He said, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. On July 25th, 2000, maybe you remember this. I do remember this. Air France, an Air France Concorde flight, 4590, it crashed shortly after takeoff in Paris. A hundred passengers were killed Nine crewmen were killed, and four people on the ground died because as it took off, it banked sharply and then crashed back into the ground. It went into a stall. And uh, the impact immediately brought about a, a huge fireball. And the cause of the crash was finally um, um, revealed, and it was the result of a 16-inch strip of metal uh, found on the runway that had burst one of the aircraft's tires at takeoff and the the tire when it blew out it sent 
shrapnel and metal into one of the fuel tanks on the wing and damaged the fuel tank, and the fuel tank caught fire. And uh, the pilot realized that, uh, but he was in such a, an attitude down the runway that he couldn't halt the takeoff, but he planned to make an emergency landing uh, at another airport that was only a minute's flying time away. And as the investigators sought to discover the reason for this accident, they listened to the tapes, you know, on the black box, over and over, the dialogue that was going on between the tower and the pilot, their conversation. And in that brief conversation, the last words of the pilot were these. As he fought to save this plane, as it's, as it's pitching, he fought to save it. The last words he spoke to the tower were these words, it's too late. It's too late. Listen to me. We have only one life in this earth. Jesus Christ is coming back, and the Scripture is full of counsel about how to live our lives until He returns so that when He returns, it won't be too late. Pray with me. With heads bowed and eyes closed, whether you're watching us on live stream or uh, live in this building, don't let it ever be too late for you. If you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, that's how you change, you change the preparation. And right now, you can call on him. In your heart, you can say, Lord Jesus, I don't want it to ever be too late. I want to be ready. And I'm not sure I know you, but today I want to receive you as my Savior. I invite you to come into my life. Forgive me of my sins and be my Savior. I promise you, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I promise you, if you'll call on him like that, he will hear that prayer. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, the Scripture says. If you've never put your trust in him, whether you're watching us on live stream, wherever it may be, in this room, I urge you with the greatest of urgency to call on him today. And Lord Jesus, thank you that you will hear that prayer. Thank you for those who've prayed that prayer in this building. Thank you for those, Father, who are watching us live. Thank you for those who will see this broadcast later and that will call on you. Thank you, Father, that you will answer that prayer. And then, Lord, for those uh, uh, listening to this message today who say, you know what, I haven't been living in holiness and godliness and a pure life. I have forgotten the prophecies of Scripture. And I want to reorient my life. I want to prepare my life. I want to live, Father, for you. And I want to be able to relax in the peace that only you can bring in the midst of great turmoil and confusion in our world. And so right now, Father, Father, I recommit myself to you to be a man, to be a woman after your own heart. Father, help me to pursue you. Renew, Father, that pursuit in me for my good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.